Okay, well, let's uh, find our way to Philippians 4. And uh, while you're turning there, um, we've been in a, a section here that really talks about uh, the challenge of worry and anxiety, of uh, misplaced concern when uh, care over a situation or a person uh, becomes an occasion for both distrusting God on the one hand and on the other hand taking up matters and responsibilities that God has not given us through those responsibilities. And, and really the, the heart of worry, the heart of anxiety is both not trusting God on the one hand and then assuming a role that God does not want us to have. And uh, so we've been talking about that and, and as Paul has um, been teaching us here, uh, I, was, I can't remember who I was talking to. It was one of you talking uh, this week. Uh, when I was in high school, I was not a Christian, but I had a friend who was, and he took me to his Bible-teaching church. Uh, many of you know the name David Hawking, and unfortunately uh, uh, he fell uh, due to moral failure in his church back uh, in uh, Calvary Church in Santa Ana, uh, close to where I grew up. Um, but but I, my friend went to his church, and they had a good Bible-teaching interim pastor in those days uh, after David Hawking was there. And... Um, I will never forget, see, my, my, my brother and I used to go, and, and it's huge, huge church. I mean, it holds several thousand people. And we'd go to, like, the back row, like the very, very back, and we'd hide behind the camera guy. There was this pole, you know, the camera there with the camera up. We'd, we'd kind of hide there, and we'd sneak in, and we'd sneak out. Um, but God began to work on me in those days. And one of the pastors was teaching on the issue of anxiety and worry on this text and it was so profound to me that someone would teach the Bible in both a way I understood, because I didn't typically understand sermons, and then the second thing was that it was relevant to me. It had something to say to me that I could walk away and go, you know, I can do that if I want to today, right? And I'll never forget what he said about this text. He said, looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, it starts with anxiety, it ends with peace, and stuck right in the middle is prayer. And I thought that's a pretty good summary of where we've been and um, thought that was a good outline that he employed last time. Well, we find ourselves today in the section that follows in chapter 4, verse 10 and following. So let me read it to you and then we'll, uh, we'll just jump in with both feet here. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay. We're going to have to hurry to get through this today, but uh, we'll see how we go here. I've even got show and tell, so we've got extra stuff to talk about. So uh, let's jump right in here, okay? Talk about contentment. This section is really about contentment, and I, and I want you to see that, that if, if anxiety and worry and fear and that thunderstorm that happens in your head and in your stomach when there's something bothering you, if that's kind of this end of the spectrum then where God wants us to be is in a place where we are praying, as we've seen, we are thankful, we have peace, we're dwelling on things, thinking on things that are true, 
And that leads to this glorious state called contentment. Uh, contentment is, is valuable. Contentment is, um, if you, you know, if you could bottle contentment and put it on the shelf at Walgreens, um, you could retire. And so could your kids and your grandkids and probably your great grandkids. Okay. Contentment is one of those commodities that it seems like everybody is pursuing. And nobody can quite figure well, out, nobody, but most people can't quite figure out uh, how to get it. And um, I want you to see in our text that Paul says, I've learned the secret. You see it there? He's learned the secret. Now, I hope you're as eager as I am to hear what this secret is. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But let's, let's kind of set up the context. Let's first of all look at the occasion for contentment. Because this is really... In the same discussion of worry and anxiety and peace, it's, it's very logically flowing into this next part here. But, but he, he brings up a specific situation, a specific issue that leads him to be able to talk about contentment. He says in verse 10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Notice uh, right out of the gate again, that he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. I mean, this guy um, has said it, well, twice so far in our chapter here. Um, and we, we entitled our study at the beginning of, uh, well, way, way back last spring. Uh, this is the epistle of joy. This is the letter of joy because Paul talks about joy and he commends joy so often. So he's, he's rejoicing in the Lord again. We say, well, why is he rejoicing in the Lord? Well, he's rejoicing in the Lord because... It says here, you have revived your concern for me. And you have to kind of read the whole thing to get a sense of what he's talking about. Look down at verse, uh, look at, down at verse 15, and 15 kind of helps us understand what he's talking about. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So, so what is he, what is he talking about here when he talks about them reviving their concern? What's he talking about? They sent a gift. Yeah, they, they were sending gifts, uh, financial gifts, or maybe clothes, or food, or, uh, probably just a financial gift to support Paul in his, in his ministry. And just like, you know, we support missionaries and pastors and different ministries today. Um, that happened in the Bible, too. And so what this verse is telling us is that um, Paul is rejoicing because there, there was a, a season that, uh, for one reason or another, the Philippians were not able to financially support Paul. And uh, so that's what kind of we see there. The Philippians recently sent Paul a financial gift following a season where they were unable to give. Now notice the text tells us here, looking back at verse 10, uh, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So, so he's not saying, hey, you guys used to support me, and then it was like, you know, you forgot about me, and so then the, the gifts stopped, and then all of a sudden recently we thought, oh, we got to start helping our friend the Apostle Paul again, and so then the gifts started returning. That's not the situation. The situation was they had always been concerned for their friend Paul, and, and you remember at the beginning of the book, he talks about how these guys have participated uh, in the gospel ministry from the first day until now. So the Philippians were there literally from the beginning of Paul's ministry and, and as, as such occupied a place that was near and dear to his heart and likewise he to them. 
So it's not like they lapsed in their concern, but something happened to where they were not able to provide for him financially for a season. But now he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because that concern has been revived uh, through uh, a financial gift that recently came uh, to them. But I want you to see, he says this in verse 11. Not that I speak from want. And so just about the time we think that, that Paul is like, um, it's kind of like your kids or your grandchildren were on Christmas morning a few weeks ago, right? And they come out and they see the gift and now all of a sudden they're not grouchy, they're rejoicing. Okay? And we kind of think of that sort of Santa Claus joy that comes with gifts. Well, just at the point we think, well, Paul's all excited about this money that he's received. He's very quick to qualify what he means about why he's rejoicing. I mean, certainly he's thankful for their concern. He's thankful for their gift. But that's not really why he's rejoicing. Look at verse 11 to learn the reason. He says, not that I speak from want. Let me help you with that. What he's saying is, I'm not rejoicing in the Lord greatly because I had this huge lack of need and now your gift has come and supplied that need. Okay, he is thankful and he's gonna, he's gonna say in the verses that follow, he is thankful for that gift. But, but that's not why he rejoices. He is not grateful primarily because of his lack, which has now been addressed through their gift. We say, well, then why is he all excited? He's all excited. I'm just going to tell you what I think he's excited about, why he's rejoicing, and then you can tell me later on if you think that's the reason or not, okay? He is rejoicing in the Lord greatly because this season of lack, where for one reason or another that that gift couldn't come to him, Paul learns something through that season. He learns something that most people never learn. And that's why he's rejoicing. That's what he's all excited about. You say, well, what did he learn? Look at verse 11. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. So he's rejoicing not just for the gift. He's rejoicing because that season of hardship where he lacked was the occasion that God taught him to learn contentment. Okay? You with me? So far, so good? Okay, we got to keep moving again. Let me give you a definition for contentment. I'm gonna, I, I mentioned uh, I have show and tell here. Uh, whenever I can bring show and tell, I like to do that. Um, there are two books, and I listed them on the bottom of your notes, that um, I know the last time I was up here, I told you you needed to read a, a biography, and you do need to do that. But um, while you're, you, know, you, don't, you don't need to read one book at a time. You understand that, right? You can, you can have stacks, and that's okay, at least in my mind. Um, I have two books that are life-changing books. I mean, they, they really are helpful. Um, and, and they're old. I'll warn you, they're old. They're 17th century books. And um, as my men's group knows, that sometimes that can be some tough sledding. But we've had a good laugh or two over some of the archaic language, trying to figure out what people are talking about. But um, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Have any of you read that? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You're working on it? It's tough, isn't it? This one's tough. My other favorite book is called The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. Watson's a little bit easier to read. Now, now, I know Curtis, and I know, I know it's all relative. Uh, Curtis is laughing at me because we just finished a Watson book, and there were some hard parts to it. 
he's actually a little bit easier to read as a writer than Burroughs. But these are both excellent books. And um, you, you understand that, that, that a book... The, a book is a lot like anything else in life. You, often what you put into it determines what you get out of it. And sometimes to gain real spiritual value from books, you have to work at it a little bit. So I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. But uh, the definition um, I want to give you about contentment is from Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It is classic. Uh, I've never found a better definition of contentment. Um, I think in the Warren home, you guys had to memorize this, right, a few years ago? This this book so struck Greg one day that he was handing out cards with this definition on it because it was so cool. Um, this is what Burroughs says uh, is contentment, okay? Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's pretty good, isn't it? And, and, and some of it you may have trouble a little bit with, but let me just kind of exegete the, uh, the definition there. Um, Christian, Christian contentment is, is a, it's a state of your soul. That's why we read Psalm 42 and he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? That word disturbed means disquieted. Disquieted. In, in older times, Christians called anxiety and worry having a disquieted soul. Okay? And I like that. That's a, that's a good word. So, so the flip side of that, the solution to that is having a quiet soul, a quiet heart. And you know what that is. There's a contentment, there's a peace, you know, your mind's not racing, your blood's not, your blood pressure and, and uh, pulse rate aren't escalated, you're quiet inside, you're quiet. And then sort of the functional part of his definition is that contentment comes when we're submitting to and delighting in the circumstances that our Heavenly Father has put us in. Um, that's pretty good, isn't it? And uh, we, we could we could spend well we we spend the whole time just talking about the definition, but I hope that that uh, whets your appetite a little bit to go buy one of these books. I think at least one, maybe both of them, are in the bookstore. Um, okay, so that that's a definition for contentment. That's what we're talking about. Now, what I want you to see from our text, by the way, Watson's book. Before I leave Watson's book, Art of Divine Contentment. This is. Um, it's a short book. It is... How many pages we got here? 131 pages, so pretty short. It's an exposition of um, Philippians 4, verse 11, basically. Okay, so Puritans... You know, you think Pastor Terry and I do long sermons. We kind of go slow. The Puritans were the kings of that. So, But it's worth every... Every word on the page, my opinion. Okay, so let's make some observations from our text here, okay? What are some observations we can make about contentment? Because Paul says, I'm rejoicing greatly, I'm thankful for your gift, I'm thankful for your concern, but that's not why I'm rejoicing. And and you understand, don't forget the big picture here, Paul is where? He's in prison, and what's going on in Christendom in this day? what's, What's going on? What's starting to happen to Christians all over the place? 
persecution and suffering and affliction. And just like us, I can guarantee you the believers that Paul is writing to were tempted to put their happiness and rejoicing and contentment in a certain set of circumstances that they wanted to happen. For example, uh, would you rather have, let's take a little quiz here, okay? Would you rather have peacetime or affliction? Okay, good, good. Uh, no, no, like, masochists here. That's good. Um, would you rather have um, health and obedient children and financial provision or illness, sickness, disobedient children, and want in finances? What would you rather have? Okay, right. So that, that's what we do. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the secret. Here's what Paul says was so valuable that he learned. There is, there is something more to contentment than just circumstances that you prefer. And that's what's so valuable that he learned here, okay? So let's, let's make some observations here. And note, note how he, this is, this is so great pastorally type stuff. He takes the occasion of their gift and their concern, and he's thankful, but he uses it as a springboard to help them to see where their joy and contentment should come from. And it's not when, you know, financial provision abounds. Observation number one, contentment is a learned state. Will you see that with me? First of all, contentment is a learned state. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak from want, but I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. So, so, so let me, let me explain that to you. You don't fall out of bed one day and learn contentment. You, you don't, you don't walk into the office one day or walk into your house one day or jump into your car today and the whiffle dust from heaven falls on you and you go, wow, I'm a contented person. It's something you have to learn. And, and, and most of us have walked with the Lord enough years now to understand this. Most of the things that are valuable in the Christian life are not things that just automatically come. Now, some of them are. And, and you know, our conversion is all of God. It, it, it's, it's all His work. It's all His doing. It's by grace through faith alone. But once we come to know God, God begins to work in us and through us, and we get this wonderful privilege of participating in what God is doing. But most of the things that are valuable in the life of the believer are things that we have to learn, things we have to work at, things we have to, by God's grace, develop. I'm, you guys will laugh at me. I'm doing a thing with Alan right now. I'm calling it the man study. And we'll talk about that another time, but... Um, we're in Titus chapter 2 right now where Paul has one thing to tell young men. You know the one thing Paul tells the young men? Remember he talks about the older guys and then the older women and then the younger women and the younger men, okay, four, four categories of people. There's one thing he says. You know what he tells the young men? You've got to keep it simple for guys. You know, you can't have a big, long outline. You've got to kind of keep it simple. He says, um, you guys need to be self-controlled. Hmm. Well, how do you... How do you become a self-controlled person? The answer is, by God's grace and with the Holy Spirit's help, because Galatians 5 says self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, 
you learn it. You develop it. That's what I'm working with Alan on right now. We, you know, we need to be men who can control ourselves. Like you know, Solomon said in Proverbs, like a city that is broken into and without walls, so is a man that has no control over his spirit. So we, we must have that sense. And so whether it's contentment, whether it's self-control, most of the valuable things that believers have or can have in this life are things we got to learn. So if we want to be content, we have to say, it's not just going to happen magically. I have to learn it. I have to grow. It has to develop like anything else. Number two. By the way, as we do this, you will see um, what is, uh, at, at the risk of being stating the obvious, what is the world's approach to contentment, contentment and happiness? You're proving my point, okay? Thank you for doing that. Um, Looking for contentment in all the wrong places. And God loves people enough that he will never allow them to be satisfied in anything other than himself. That's because he loves us. Because he knows if I make my life and my contentment about a relationship or a financial bottom line or a piece of stuff or, right, ultimately that fails. You can have the perfect spouse and that person is still a sinner. You can have a lucrative investment portfolio and you die and you can't take it with you, right? You can enjoy health now, but guess what? You're going to die of something. And God loves us enough to remind us of that. So contentment is something you have to learn. And and, and you understand in the in the culture, I'm sorry, I keep going on bunny trails here. In our culture, contentment and the desire for it is totally become a marketing technique. That desire is capitalized upon by people that understand most people want contentment. So if we can convince you that you can get it by buying something from them, we're going to do it. You know, I watched a football game yesterday, and about 38 times someone uh, exhorted me that if I just had a new truck, I'd be content. Yeah, and a beer in the truck, right? Yeah, but, well, yeah, so, yeah, they try to separate those, but. You know, we, we went to the we went to the Ranger game with the kids for the first time uh, a few months ago, and I think I told you the story before. My kids had never been in an environment where public drinking was really obvious, and so they're looking. I remember Alan looking at me. He's only got this look of fear on his face, like, "Daddy, I'm surrounded by beer," you know, <laughs> just kind of like freaking out. And and the advertisement for you know it was Budweiser or Bud Light or Miller. I don't remember which one it is, but but it was like it was something like. Um, you know, let the good times roll or – and there's this association that buying and drinking our beer brings you the good times. And, and there's such a close association between enjoying sports and drinking that you almost don't even think about it, right? Well, what is that? It's capitalizing on this idea that we like to be content, we like to be happy, and, and they've convinced a whole bunch of men mostly that you got to have their beer to have that. 
doesn't last very long because then the next Sunday when the football game comes on, you got to do it all over again. But, okay, and the bunny trail. But my, my point is that this is all over the place. In fact, a, a great conduit for the gospel is recognizing that everybody wants this. And they're pursuing everything in the world to get it. And all those things are failing. And that's why the gospel is so wonderfully valuable. Because you can, if, if you're getting to know that person well enough, you can find the thing in their life that they're looking for for contentment. And I can guarantee you that it's failing in some way. And there's a platform for the gospel. Okay? All right, end, end of rants here. Number two. Contentment is possible in any and every circumstance. I think the most valuable thing that we learn here is that the Bible says, now watch this, the world's approach is contentment is connected to some circumstance. Okay? So if you're convinced that um, a relationship with that special someone is how you're going to be happy. See, so there's a connectedness. Okay, You're happy when you got the relationship or health, or finances, or stuff, or um, you know, important things. We, we want our kids to walk with God, don't we? We want our kids to be believers and, and to love Christ and to do that. And when they don't do that, it grieves us, and it should grieve us. But the Bible's saying even something that's that important should not, should not, content, or say it like this, contentment is not conditional on your circumstances, even godly circumstances. Now, that's profound, and no advertiser in our country wants you to know that. But it's true. You can be content in whatever circumstance you're in. So look at what he says. He says, not that I speak from want. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Isn't that amazing? How many people do you know are content in whatever circumstances they are in? That's a rare thing, isn't it? That's why it's called... My little plug here. My, I'm trying to sell you something, aren't I? That's not good. I'm just cutting off the branch that I'm sitting on here. It's why it's called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Because who lives like this? Who talks like this? Who, who says, you know, that sweet, inward, gracious, gentle frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition? Who talks like that, let alone lives it? It's rare. But he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Can I, just a footnote. If you are trying to minister to somebody that is grieving, that is anxious, that is troubled, uh, that are struggling, that are discouraged, one of the best things you can tell them is that, because, and, and the reason they're all those things is because they're looking for the happiness or contentment in something else and that's just falling apart. One of the best things you can tell them is, um, I've got good news for you. You can have contentment, and that contentment will never be taken away from you by your circumstances. You know, someone comes and their, their marriage has fallen apart, and all their hope, all their hope is in their spouse changing. And I get the chance to tell them, and maybe you've told them, you know what? Even if your spouse never changes, you can honor God, you can be at peace, you can be content, because you have Him. And what this verse is saying is your contentment is not wrapped up in some particular circumstance that may or may not happen. 
And that's, that's why people, that's why the psalmist in Psalm 42 is saying, you know, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why are you disturbed and in me? Because he's let his circumstances so overwhelm him that he's lost sight of the one who really gives contentment. And he's, he's slid over into this camp that says, I can't be happy unless this happens. So contentment uh, is possible in any and every circumstance. And then he sort of expands on that. Contentment is not dependent upon circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, you understand what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, I've learned to be content whether there's dinner on the table or not. And and maybe there's a couple of you, but for most of us, that's never been a situation for us. So something as simple as daily food and clothing. So we're thinking, man, I can't afford cable TV. Oh, well, persecution. Yes, it's persecution. I'm suffering. I'm being afflicted. You understand that that this is true persecution and suffering here, right? This is this is he lacks basic things to live. And he's saying, I've figured out the secret of learning to be content in any and every circumstance. I love that, any and every circumstance. Does that cover everything? So we say, well, what's the secret? What, what, how did he learn it? Here it is, ready? Contentment is possible because of Christ's empowerment. Contentment is possible because of Christ's empowerment. This is one of the most popular verses in Christendom. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The NIV uh, uh, translates the antecedent there so you know who he's talking about. I can all do things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. We get in all sorts of trouble when we take verses out of context. Because, speaking of sports, um, there are lots of people that think that this verse is about winning football games, winning baseball games. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, here's what I want you to see. This verse has nothing to do with sports in that way. Because by context, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what he's saying, do all things in this context means to be content in all circumstances. That's what it means. It doesn't mean if I just trust Jesus, we can win the football game. That's not what it means. In fact, if you want to apply this verse to sports, what this verse means is, can you be content in Jesus when your team loses? That's how it applies to football. When you go home and you don't make the playoffs, again, um, that's where this verse really has something to say about sports. So, so watch this. Jesus' empowerment, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is, is, is not some, you know, get out of jail free card that says I can do wonderful, amazing things because I have Jesus. What it means is in whatever circumstances God has sovereignly seen to put you in, Jesus will provide what you need to be content and happy in that circumstance. That's what it means. That's what, what Burroughs was talking about, this, this wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. Submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal. Now, 
lest we lose sight of the context, contentment is not merely enduring all circumstances, but rejoicing in them. Don't forget where this started. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says it again in verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That's where this starts, right? He's rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Well, why is he rejoicing in the Lord? Because he got the financial gift? No, no, no. He's saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord because God taught me something amazing through this circumstance. And what he taught me is that Christ strengthens me to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. And contentment is not just this stoic, sort of brazen face, you know, Christian grunting through things, saying, I'm just going to push through this hard time, you know, with a, with a, a, a holy scowl. Yeah, that's it. Contentment is knowing joy that arises from the quietness of heart in the midst of whatever circumstance you're in. And we say, what planet is this guy from? But you know what? What a, what a testimony that is. We talked about the peace that passes understanding last time, right? That the peace that the world can't explain when you should be anxious, but you're at peace. And he goes a step further. This is the contentment that passes understanding when you're rejoicing when the world would be angry. When you're content when the world would be asking for anti-anxiety medication. When you're hopeful when the world would be saying, I've got to find something. I've got to fix the problem. I've got to do something. Because Christ empowers in every situation. And notice, the, the empowerment is not just to be okay. The, the empowerment is not just to endure. But by this verse, this verse is mostly about the joy that Jesus gives you in your circumstances. That's mostly what it's about. So, Burroughs, I'm sorry, this is from uh, Watson. <laughs> Evidences of, a, of contentment. And uh, maybe we'll... How do you know when you have this? And, and I'll tell you what, I, I, I cannot do any better than this. Okay, So I'm just going to read this to you. How do you know? This, this chapter is called, How a Christian May Know Whether He Has Learned This Divine Art. <laughs> Number one, a contented spirit is a silent spirit. He does not have one word to say against God. There is a sinful silence when God is dishonored, His truth wounded, and men hold their peace. This silence is allowed sin. And like when, when Wes was talking about, you know, someone's going to pull the plug on a baby, okay? That would be what he calls here a sinful silence because God has dishonored his truth, wounded, and men are holding their peace. Okay? That, that's not a good type of silence is what he's saying. But here's the holy silence. The holy silence, excuse me. There is a holy silence when the soul sits down quiet and content with its condition. So we know that we're living in this text when our souls are quiet in whatever the condition we're in. A contented spirit is never angry 
unless it is with himself for having hard thoughts of God. Number two, a contented spirit is a cheerful spirit. Contentment is something more than patience, for patience only denotes submission. Contentment denotes cheerfulness. A contented Christian is more than passive. He does not only bear the cross, but he takes up the cross. He looks upon God as a wise God and on whatever he does as in order to achieve a cure. He not only submits to God's dealings, but rejoices in them. He not only says, the Lord is just in all that has befallen me, but he also says, the Lord is good. He who is contented with his condition does not lose his spiritual joy, and indeed he has that within him which is the ground of cheerfulness. Number three, how do you know when you've achieved this contentment? Well, Watson's helping us here. Number three, a contented spirit is a thankful spirit. I love this. A gracious heart spies mercy in every condition. A gracious heart spies mercy in every condition. So how do you know if you're content? When in the midst of your hard circumstance you can see the multitude of mercies that God is bringing you in that condition. When you can see those things. Others will bless God for prosperity, but this person blesses him for affliction. Thus he reasons with himself, am I in want? God sees it as better for me to want than to abound. God is now dieting me. He sees it as better for my spiritual health sometimes to be fasting. Therefore, he not only submits, but is thankful. The malcontent is ever complaining of his condition. The contented spirit is ever giving thanks. Oh, what height of grace is this? A contented heart is a temple where the praises of God are sung forth, not a sepulcher wherein they are buried. A contented Christian is the greatest straits as his heart enlarged and dilated in thankfulness. He often contemplates God's love and election. He sees that he is a monument of mercy, and therefore he desires to be a pattern of praise. There is always congratulatory music in a contented soul. Number four, when a person is content, no condition comes amiss to him. So he says, a contented Christian can accept anything, whether want or abundance. A contented Christian knows how to come to terms with any condition, like we see in Paul. The contented Christian does not seek to choose his cross, but leaves God to choose it for him. He is content with both, he is content with both for the kind and the duration. A contented spirit says, let God apply what medicine he pleases and let it remain as long as it will. And I know that when it has done its cure and eaten the venom of sin out of my heart, God will take it off again. And the last thing he says, he who is contented with his condition will not run into sin to rid himself of trouble. That's a good test. 
You know you're content when you're not willing to sin to change your condition. If God does not open the door by his providence, they will break it open and wind themselves out of affliction by sin. A contented Christian is willing to wait for God's leisure and will not stir until God opens a door. If you're following the Bible reading plan, uh, I'm doing the uh, one where I'm in Genesis right now. And, uh, in Genesis so 16, 17, somewhere in there, um, Sarai goes to Abraham and says, um, how's God going to... How's God going to uh, uh, keep us from, from being barren and, and bring us children? Maybe it's if you go and sleep with my maid, Hagar, and have children with her. Maybe that's the way to do it. And that's a classic example of what Watson is talking about. She was not contented in her situation because she chose a sinful path to change it. Okay, so we'll put a comma in our notes there, but um, uh, it is a rare jewel. It is... Um, it is a rare thing to learn contentment, but what we see right here is that God provides us what we need to do it and to live in light of what we've learned. So we will come back next week and uh, continue our discussion there.